Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. In the next three programmes, the late Michael Wright, who recently died at the age of 105, will be talking about his life, which began as a baby on the peak in 1912. He was born in the same year as the Qing dynasty came to an end and the Republic of China was proclaimed. It was also the year that the Titanic sunk. Michael Wright would later be a volunteer soldier in the defence of Hong Kong and a prisoner of war during the Japanese occupation. After the Second World War, he was the key architect of Hong Kong's public housing and would later become the director of public works. These conversations were at his home in Exhibition Road in London last September, just after his 105th birthday. In this week's programme, Michael Wright tells me about his childhood and the lead-up to war. We're looking at some photographs here. You used to do a lot of swimming as a family. We used to have lunch picnics. Families would group together and hire a lunch and go off to the Stone Cutters, which was an island off the coast of Kowloon. And that was the easy one. Then on real special occasions, we went round the coast to Big Wave Bay, Sheko. There were full-day expeditions. But the swimming at Stonecutter was almost every week. You know, after school, we'd go down and the uh, mums and dad would come from the office and in the evening go off to Stonecutters and do, do this swimming. And this was very, very popular. So you had armours looking after you as babies? One armour that were very, very faithful. And um, I think she stayed with us. We had four children, and I think she was with us the whole time, our maid Jay. It was really a profession among the Chinese. Then they were always dressed the same way with their black trousers and, and white tunics. And what, you used to go with them to Magazine Gap Road? Well, up to Magazine Gap, yes, so up, up the road, to walk up Coombe Road. Then they had the, the stone seat where the armors would perch themselves, three or four of them, and the children would just play in the road. And what was your address? 528 The Peak. Where we're sitting in your flat in London, in fact, you've still got an opium table from that time. Yes, well, I think that was a wedding present to my parents. This, I think, was the house when they were first got married. That was a writing desk, a terrible writing desk was a wedding present, and it, it all fell to bits. My mother was very fond of it, but it was all falling to bits, all blackwood and um, complete useless with a writing desk, really. How would you design yours? <laughs> well, I'd like a good, good old-fashioned writing desk. Um, the one I got is government, Hong Kong government issue, which we brought back to England with us. But I think there's a, there's a little... That, that's it, yeah, that. That is that. And my mother had it till she died, and then I inherited it. So that's quite, a, quite an heirloom. Blackwood was very, very popular. In the, those days. This is, what, 19, 1912, I suppose, that period. Now, you've also got some photographs of you as children during the First World War. You would have a tent in the garden with your brother, yeah, yeah, with all, your brother all, Dennis. All these tents, yeah, we always dressed up as, as soldiers, spent a lot of time dressed up as soldiers. So yeah. what would you hear? I mean, it's very young and very early memories, yeah. but what would you hear about the war? Um, I remember my uncle, who's in one of these photographs, going off to war, must have been about 1916, 1917. I remember seeing him off on a ship. He was in Hong Kong, Singapore, Royal Artillery, and he was going off to the Middle East. I remember waving to him on the ship, 
as he's getting out of the harbour, and so he didn't survive the war, he was killed soon after he got to the Middle East. And this is my main memory of the war, and I'm hearing about his death. But as far as the war in Hong Kong was concerned, say, there was um, quite a lot of military activity, I think, because of the prison camps there, the internment camps. Who were the internment camps for? Mainly for German sailors, the merchantmen, not regular sailors, a lot of merchant ships all got interned in Hong Kong and the volunteers provided the guard. And where were those internment camps? I think, and that I don't know, I think it must be in Kowloon side, I think. But really, so you reckon one of, perhaps one of your first memories is waving your uncle off? Yes, one, one of my first memories. In, I think my very first memory was my mother having my... Uh, towards the end of the war, my fourth sister. And my brother and I were sort of lodged out with my grandparents, who lived in mid-level somewhere, in a place called Blue Bungalow. Nobody was quite able to locate where it was. We were staying there, and my mother was in an ambulance carried by two coolies, and I thought that she was dead. I remember being at May Road tram station where they beat Ramgood and then I remember being there and seeing her being carried down to, I think, her parents' house. And um, also, quite often, you saw people, uh, dead people being carried in a similar sort of way. And I remember thinking that it was, that, that was she was dead. So your mum, what, was your mum pregnant with your sister at the time? At the time, and I can't think why she was going down to see, oh, her, see. her mother. Perhaps she was... Um, you know, again, I think in those days, pregnancies went two or three days in advance. Now they seem to be fairly simple, but they were more complicated in those days. In Victoria Hospital. You know Barker Road? Yes. And there's a block of flats. That was Victoria Hospital. And that's where I was born. And one of the first jobs I did post-war, so there was a shell of the building, but no roof, no floors. And one of my first jobs when I went back to Hong Kong after the war was to rehabilitate the old Victoria Hospital and put a roof on and convert it into five flats. And it was quite interesting because one of the rooms was the delivery room, you know, all with tiles and things like that. And it was odd to be in that room and thinking, well, this is where I was born. Can you say in your household, you, you said you had servants. Can you describe what kind? What kind? Well, the cook boy who was number one, and he, his main job was serving at meals and pouring out the drinks, you know, being general factotum. He was the boss of the servants. We didn't have a separate cook, and some families had a separate cook. And we had a house coolie whose job was to sweep the floor and polish the brass and keep the place tidy. And then we had a wash armour, because, of course, before the days of washing machines, and because of the heat and so on, there was an awful lot of washing to be done. And so it was a full-time job having the wash armour and then the baby armour to look after their children. And, and you were never allowed out in the sun without a hat? Without a hat. Well, then in the summer, in the winter it was OK, but in the summer always had our topis on. So topi is a sun hat? Yes. And, of course, it had them in the army as well. You know, all for these khaki hats. So it's a pith helmet? Yeah, rather cumbersome things. And so that's what you went out with as a child as well? And then as a child, we had these round topers like these. Now, after asking you about the sun hat, I actually cut across you when you were talking about the servants, but among the servants that you had was a, what was called a market coolie. Yeah. Well, his, his job was the most difficult one because he would go off to town 
Now I think they could go in the peach family, the back of the peach family they were allowed to have servants and they would, um, <clears throat> or he'd probably walk down the come up in the peak tram uh, with the daily food. Uh, there were no refrigerators, of course, then. So no, no fridges? No, no such thing as fridges. But they had an ice pot. We had a big box, and he'd come up with a block of ice, probably about that square, that, that high, and this would be put into this ice box. So that acted as a refrigerator. And that had to be replaced every day. That was his main job. My mother would give him instructions what to buy. So did you grow up? I mean, it's, it's, it's really... I mean, you're, you're brilliant on some of these early memories, but um, can you remember, I mean, when you're a child before age eight, before you go to boarding school, what kind of food? Would you have had any Chinese food or was it largely English travel? Largely English food. Yes. Um, I think we used to have, well, certainly, um, latterly, when I was... Um, boss of the family, we used to have Chinese food once a week, post-war, pre-war I can remember certainly having the occasional Chinese meal at home but basically it was English food I was in Hong Kong till I was eight when I came to England So 1920? Yes and uh, had a very very happy childhood in Hong Kong, we had a nice house quite a big house in Coombe Road which runs down from Magazine Gap, well naturally I used to go to the peak school and my brother and I, we would, I had another brother, we would have a chair to take us to the school. A sedan chair? Sedan chair, we'd share a sedan chair to go to school. And then the market coolie would come to the school with a couple of scooters and my brother and I would always free, free wheel from the school back home. It's all downhill from, from the peak school to where we lived. It was a good school. I've still got one of the reports. There were only four in the class. And when I came to England to school, I was a year younger than anybody else in the form. And it was that all the way through. I mean, I took my school certificate when I was 14. And it was a very, very good basic education we got from the peak school in Hong Kong. So you were born in Hong Kong in 1912. What did your, uh, what did your father and mother do? My, well, my father was at the Public Works Department. He was also a building surveyor in the Public Works Department. And my grandfather, my mother's father, had been out there. He was the racing and valuation department. He was also a colonel of the volunteers. And um, I got a photograph of him in his full regiment, regiment force. He was always known as Colonel Chapman. So that was your mother's father? My mother's father. So he went out about 1880 to Hong Kong, so we had a connection with Hong Kong for a long time, seeing my daughter still there. So your parents met in Hong Kong? Yes, they met in the cathedral choir. My mother was an um, assistant organist. He, she was quite a musician, and she was the assistant organist. My father was a member of the choir, got, got married in 1910, I think. And there were two boys, you and your older brother? Well, there were then two sisters and two girls, yeah. There were four of us. And, uh, I mean, to remember also, as I say, you, you remember, although you were only eight years old when you left Hong Kong, so you were describing the market coolie who brought the block of ice. I remember it very well. The, um, in my, say, my last year in Hong Kong, I remember the house very well. Describe it to me. It was um, a very big house, one of the three, a terrace of three, down Coombe Road. It was all on the first floor. We had a rather grand staircase up to the front door, and it was all over, over a basement. And then we had a very big hall with a rather grand staircase, and we had three rooms, I think, 
and a wide veranda. Verandas that I think were probably eight feet wide. There we had quite a big garden. We used to play cricket on our lawn, you know, and, and golf. My father worked out. We had one hole, about eight, nine different um, positions to get to the hole to play golf and we had a different level we had the main house was here and the, below that was the garden and so one hole would be a, a blind one from the upper level down to the lawn and it was quite quite a good nine hole golf course <laughs> so the fact that you followed your father I mean was that did he influence you at a young no, age? No I think that was really accidental I was in a way expected to go to university and in 1929, I think it was, when I was being... 17. 17. My father was still working in Hong Kong. We had done a very, very nice holiday in France. Came back and there was a letter from him. There were the days, of course, before airmail, anything like that, no telephones. And uh, that he had um, uh, had a stroke in Hong Kong. He had been invalided out. He was only 49. And uh, here were we with my brother about to go out to Oxford, me to go back, go back to school for another year and again presumably go up to university, and two younger sisters. And then suddenly, main breadwinner suddenly lost his well-paid job and was going to go on pension when he was only 49, which was normal retiring age. Hong Kong was 55, so he wouldn't get anything like his full pension. So there was really quite a financial crisis in the Wright family. So my brother went around trying to get money from various funds to help him to Oxford. He was determined to go to Oxford. I had passed my usual basic exams at school. I wasn't a great one. I, I tolerated school. My school days were not the happiest days of my life. I, I tolerated school. I found I was what I call an inverted common bread. I was a year younger than anybody else in the form. I wasn't very good at sports, and as far as English schools were concerned, if you weren't much good at sports, you didn't count for very much. I was already tending towards getting to architecture, building, that kind of thing. And so um, I did, I left school, and I joined the Regency Polytechnic and went up there. In London? In, in London, and started, I was article for two years to quantity surveyors, Oh, that you were article? Yeah. What's that? Well, you, you did a job for nothing. For two years, you work for the firm for nothing, but then you are getting taught a profession. I think it's gone, it's gone out of system now, but it was very useful in for 50, 60 years ago, and certainly did me very well. I joined a, four of us, four article pupils, two in the first year, two in the second year, and the two bosses. So it's a small firm of... Surveyors. By the time I'd finished my articles, I then decided I wanted to be an architect. So I, um, I went to another <coughs> one-man firm and went to evening classes and eventually qualified as an architect. Now you can only become an architect if you go to a university, but in those days you could do it by being a pupil. Just to get the timeline then, you, at age eight, you leave Hong Kong and you then went to boarding school in England? In England, yes. And then when do you return? You returned to Hong Kong in 1938? Yes, 38, yes. And what made you go back? There was a job advertised in Hong Kong. And I thought, well, why not? You know, I had a happy childhood in Hong Kong, so why not go back there? 
and I applied for the job. And so would any of your family still been in Hong Kong at no, that they, point? They, they were, they were, my father already retired. And I think I was the only person who applied for the job because, you know, Hong Kong was very much in the news with the Japanese on the border. Yeah, what did your mother think of that? Well, no, I think she, she didn't mind. They, um, I mean, they, they, they themselves have been in Hong Kong and they loved Hong Kong as much as, as much as I did. So we're entering very much into pre-war Hong Kong. So at that point, you joined the volunteers? Yes. Yes, I've been lucky. I'd, um, I had joined the um, Terrace Royal Regiment in England before that. But when I went, when I arrived back in Hong Kong, I immediately joined the volunteers. My grandfather had been colonel, my father, and it was very much a family tradition to be in the volunteers. And it set me in good stead with having joined early. Uh, when it came to expanding the volunteers, we all joined as privates. And, uh, but when they expanded the volunteers, I was given a commission. And of course, I had a much easier time in the prison camp as, a, as an officer's camp than I would have done in an other ranks camp. So, what sort of officer were you? England, I'd been in the infantry, foot soldier. I think I was 26 when I got to Hong Kong. I decided I was too old to be in the infantry, so I joined became a gunner which doesn't mean so much marching. And I was posted to a forage battery. We had forage shells. And, and there were a number of these batteries round um, Hong Kong Island ready to repel a Japanese landing because it was thought at that time that they wouldn't come across the border. There would be a, a seaborne landing. So there were a number of batteries dotted round the coast of Hong Kong, four-inch guns and six-inch guns, to repel Japanese landings. So as a gunner, just remind me, with the different... So which... Um, the battalions were based, we've talked before, on... Well, on, um, if you're in the infantry, you, you did walking and you marched and you uh, were, could be anywhere. Whereas if you're in a battery, it was a, it was a fixed position. We had two four-inch guns which were fixed and we had proper accommodation for, for the other ranks. I mean, there were just concrete sheds, but they could sleep under cover and not, not on the ground. So as a part of the volunteers ahead of the Japanese invasion, I mean, in 1938, 39, 40, how aware are you at that time? Very aware. It was, I think, accepted. There was, there was almost certainly be a Japanese invasion. Once the European war broke out, so I had about six months, nine months in Hong Kong before, before the war started. But once the war... Uh, oh, you mean the European once, war? Once the war broke out in, in, in Europe, there was a very big danger that the Japanese would attack Hong Kong. They had what was called the Jinjinkas line, which was meant to hold up the Japanese for about three weeks. In fact, it held them up for one night when it came to the actual battle of Hong Kong. The Japanese were very, very well-trained soldiers and they were also very brave. People were inclined to laugh at the Japanese but it came as a great, great shock when they attacked Hong Kong and how very efficient they were and very cruel. Tell me a little bit about the volunteers. So you would meet up, would you go to a set battery? Did you actually fire the guns? Yes, we used to be. We were very well trained in many ways. So were you at Pinewood or what, what ba or did you move around the batteries? I've no, been no, to Pinewood no, no. battery. Um, we, well, we started off it was a mobile battery where we could um, set up the guns anywhere, but that quickly changed. And we had a fixed position on Apple Chow, that's the small island 
I think it's been linked to the mainland now, Boston, on the south coast there's Aberdeen. And we used to go there with sampans across Aberdeen Harbour and they had these two four-inch guns and the searchlight position and another place for the rangefinders. It was a static thing and my job before I was commissioned was to be a rangefinder. A rangefinder? And, uh, if you looked at the sea, we had a telescope thing and we called it the pressure rain finder and we had to follow the ship with the bow wave and with the angle of the depression the calculation was done by the instrument you get the range and we would call out the range of the ship was there and then this was relayed to the um, people in the gun and the gun layer would get the message and he would adjust the level of the gun up or down to get the right range. What would you be shouting over? 200 metres, 500 metres? Yeah, yeah, target moving left, 200, 250, 300, you know, as we as they moved so the obviously the range would... Um, would change. It was very much a team effort. And the guns had a, a gun detachment was I think five or six people. They had one person lifting up the ammunition and putting it into then somebody else then ramming it up the barrel. Two people, one moving the gun up and down that way depending on the rate, another one moving it that way. So up and down and then left and right? Uh, yes, yeah, so there are two different people with the gun layers. And I think there was a gun detached about eight people, six or eight people, I can't remember though. So when you say a four-inch or a six-inch gun, that's a, is that...? That was the diameter of the shells. Were they heavy? What were they made of? Uh, yes, they, um, well, the six-inch, four-inch weren't so bad. I think they were about 30 pounds, and you trained how to you know, push them into your arm and lift them up. The six-inch guns, and they were over 100 pounds, those shells were really pretty, pretty heavy. If you had been, you know, in a situation where you were... Um, trying to hit a ship. I mean, these gun batteries were geared up for a seaborne invasion. Weren't yes, they? and we, we would have um, we have live ammunition, but we would practice with shells. No, yes, we had live shells. So when, you'd, when, you'd... When, when we were at camp. We do um, one full day training a week, and then we had two weeks camp. At camp, we would do quite a lot of firing. You would have a, a target being thrown by a launch. The launch was quite a long way in front of the target and then we would um, actually fire our guns at the target. So we had experience of firing the guns. Did you get to blow up stuff? No, no, not really. You know, the shells landed in the sea. So all of this, when the battery guns, were they already in place in 1930? They were, they were in place, yeah. So it was, was this all shipped out from the UK? Yes. Well, I, I think what they were taking off derelict ships, naval ships that were past use by, and the guns were taken off the ship and replaced on land in Hong Kong. So on December the 8th, 1941, the Japanese uh, military start coming through the new territories. Mm -hmm. And where were you? Well, we were mobilised two days before. On the Saturday evening, I was at a dance. For, you know, they were having dances to get money for spitfires, money for this, money for the other things. And about 11 o'clock, there was an announcement that would all naval personnel and merchant men immediately get onto their ships. And, and so was this in what would be now Central or Tamar? This is the Valencia Hotel. Oh. And so that really, the end of the dance, because um, half the people there were, in fact, naval. And we had a drill that if we were mobilised, 
Uh, we had studies other acts, and lots of them haven't got telephones. Well, telephones are not as common then as they are now. And we had a drill that um, if we were mobilised, we had to notify our soldiers. And about nine o'clock the following morning, the Monday morning, I got a phone call from the flat and that we were being mobilised. And so I had to go to uh, the house of the four of my troops and said we're being mobilised and they went to four other people so we you know, did it that way so that get it, get it around and we had to um, fall in I think at five o'clock in the evening and everybody had a hundred percent turned out and we got into lorries and we taken to um, Aberdeen in these lorries or in the car we had a private car but to get out there and across champions and to our gun position where we had to spend the night collecting ammunition, getting live ammunition, because that was normally not kept in the battery position in peacetime. So we spent most of the night up getting the ammunition ready. And the next morning, I was on duty in what was called the battery observation post. We would do eight hours on uh, this battery observation post uh, with a range finder. And I got a phone call. To, well, I, in fact, I watched. We were overlooking Lama Channel, and um, a number, about eight aeroplanes came over and in my ignorance I thought these were probably from an aircraft carrier coming to reinforce Hong Kong's air force. But after about half an hour I heard a lot of bombs dropping and then I got a phone message from um, somewhere in headquarters. Had we had any casualties? And I said no, but Air Ed wasn't here. It was, uh, I think it was actually Kai Tech and so on. And I remember a Macau ship on the way into Hong Kong when these planes came, we turned round and went back to Macau. And that was the beginning of the, um, of the war, as far as we were concerned. At the outbreak of war, how did you feel? I think shock was the original thing, and then just realised that we, this is what we've been trained <coughs> for, this is what we expected, and it was happening, and life was going to change. And I think one felt a certain sense of security in that the battery was about 50 people, 50, 60 people. We were all trained, we were all in it together. And it was a lot of moral support having these people on the same position. So you've heard these Japanese planes come over. You reckon that they probably were bombing Kai Tak at the time. Yeah, yeah. And um, so this is a real outbreak of war. So you're about to, you're, you're starting to mobilise. You've collected this ammunition. So you were at, at Play Chow. On Lapley Tower, they got they in fitted fixed gun position. Each gun position had a dugout sort of thing for the troops to, with, with bugs in, so that they, you know, they could sleep on the job. It was very limited. The officers would do eight hours on what's called the battery observation post, would be where you had the rangefinder and the telescopes and so on, and were there to manage the guns if they had to be used in anger. So if there's 60 of you, when you're on that, when you're on that post, so there's mm. you with the rangefinder... No, you'll probably always be the rangefinder. I would just be sitting there with glasses. There was a big, very strong binoculars looking out to see, to see if one saw any Japanese ships coming in. And how would you know it was a Japanese ship? Because there weren't any English ships anyway. <laughs> that's a slight... But that's really true. You know, I think there was one decrepit destroyer, the British fleet in Hong Kong. 
So in December 1941, you are based in Apley Chow yeah. and on a gun battery. Yeah, yes. So in fact, you, uh, in terms of the invasion, you're one of the last outposts, really. Well, we were, I think, because, mind you, we had a... It, it all turned out a pretty easy time because we just sit on our backsides and we didn't, in fact, get the attack that we expected from the sea because the land attack went so well for the Japanese. There was no point for them having a, a sea attack. My thanks to the late Michael Wright, who died last month at the age of 105. In next week's programme, Michael Wright goes on to tell me about how it was important to keep the mind busy as a prisoner of war. Gold teeth, gold watch, gold anything. Uh, you could sell it to the um, centuries. Sensible people would buy dried fish or some um, beans through the centuries, but most of them just bought cigarettes. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.